Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland in Public Square. I'm Mike McIntyre, Plain Dealer columnist and host of the Sound of Ideas on WCPN Ideastream 90.3. It's my pleasure to introduce today's forum, the first in this year's For the Love of Cleveland series. Everyone is talking about the Cuyahoga River this week and for good reason. 50 years ago Saturday, it burned. It wasn't the first time, but it was a low point. The river was fouled with oil slicks, sewage, and debris. There were no signs of life on the river. The fire and the national attention became catalysts for the modern environmental movement, including creation of the EPA and the Clean Water Act. Today, 50 years later, the Cuyahoga River is healthy and vibrant. However, Cleveland and the nation are facing the unprecedented challenges of climate change, of climate change, and factors such as vacant urban land and a declining tree canopy, which along with sustained social and economic inequality, have been shown to exacerbate the effects of climate change in Cleveland and its neighborhoods. This June and July for the Love of Cleveland series will address climate change from the ground up through the lens of the four natural elements, water, air, earth, and fire. Today, first up, water. Our river's dark history isn't the only environmental embarrassment locally. Lake Erie was a national laughingstock at one time, too, the butt of jokes on late-night talk shows and Saturday Night Live. In the late 1960s, people declared, the lake is dead. It, too, has come a long way. But sewage dumping, invasive species, algal blooms, and record high water levels now still pose threats to its long-term health. The management of the Great Lakes water supply is protected by the Great Lakes Compact, an agreement between the eight states that border the Great Lakes and signed into law in 2008. Is it enough? What will happen if national attention shifts future economic development to the Great Lakes region where water is plentiful and the risk for natural disasters and extreme weather events is minimal? What challenges will climate change present for Lake Erie? And what are we doing to address those challenges? There's plenty to talk about this hour. We're going to chat a bit here and then open up to your questions, so please do ask questions. Joining me on stage, Dr. Thomas Beyer, Senior Fellow at Cleveland State University's Maxine Goodman Levin College of Urban Affairs. Tom, good to see you. Thank you, Michael. Also with us, Crystal M.C. Davis, Policy Director of the Alliance of the Great Lakes. Crystal, good to see you again. Good to see you. And Francisco Paco Ayavides, he is Interim Executive Director at the Green Leadership Trust. Very nice to have you with us as well. Thank you, Mike. All right, with that, let's get started. Let's ask this question. We've come a long way, and I've laid that out, and we're talking about it a lot with the river, but the lake as well. And I want to maybe have your thoughts on the efforts that went into 50 years from that point to this point. How would you characterize what has happened and what drove change. Crystal? Sure. Thank you again. Um, I think so much has happened in the last 50 years. Uh, when I think back about, or I wasn't around, so I don't think <laughs> back to 1969, no shade. Um, <laughs> when I do my research about what has happened back then, I uh, have learned so much about the people of that movement. We agree that Cleveland was the cornerstone of this environmental movement and really the cleanup of not only uh, the Cuyahoga River, but so many other river rivers and tributaries. There are way more Clevelands across the Great Lakes. Um, we know that uh, 
the Time Magazine photo really energized this movement as well. What treats what, me... What's interesting, by the way, is that Time Magazine photo was not of that fire. Right, It exactly. was a fire from more than a decade previous. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. What I think is, I'm most intrigued about the movement and the, the efforts around that time was the fact that there was Mayor Carl Stokes, um, first black mayor um, elected in a major city at that time, um, partnering with uh, the federal government and his brother, Congressman Lewis Stokes, and folks at all different levels of government uh, saying we need an all-hands-on-deck approach. People from various socioeconomic uh, levels, people from various races saying, listen, water is the unifier. And that is so important and a lesson that we can take with us today because as we're facing new challenges today, we need to adopt that same approach. All hands on deck. There's enough that divides us as a country and we need to partner together to make water the unifier that brings us together. Tom, what about the fact, we, she just mentioned Mayor Stokes, there was a $100 million bond issue for environmental purposes that was passed well before this river fire. That was already in place. So it was already being thought of in Cleveland then. But then once the fire happened, that became this catalyst. The idea that that coming from that was the Clean Water Act, the EPA, all of those things were either caused by it or, or the, the cause was furthered by it. Uh, in some ways, do we look back then at the river fire and at the troubles that we've had in Cleveland and its environment and see them as positives? Well, in a sense, uh, a positive was created out of the negative. And keep in mind also, the 1960s, prior to that $100 million, was a very rough time in the city with the Huff riots and Glenville riots and so forth. And that helped, I think, create the context of we've got to get on a better track. And uh, the recognition that the city was really very vulnerable in more than one way. It, it was its racial disparities, the e economic disparities, the environmental conditions, we got to turn a corner. And then the private sector s saw that it has to get on board. It, it can't just be the public sector on its own. And they began to dig in and find out what their role could be. Do you think that the pollution of the river was in some ways an indication of our success? What, what made Cleveland a success was being this industrial hub. It became the fifth largest City oh, in the country. Oh, indeed. You know, an interesting thing, in the process of producing uh, kerosene, which was the first product that John D. Rockefeller and the Standard Oil Company is what they, they the, in order to get to kerosene in the technical process, they, they actually produced gasoline, and that was gently dumped in the river. And, and so the economic growth of the city was facilitated by that easy, available dump ground. You just put it in there and forget about it. Well, you can only forget about it for a while. Eventually, it'll, it'll, it'll ignite. Paco, let's talk about the threats that exist today. So we've, I think people are congratulating themselves on 50 years of progress since 1969. There, there, maybe we could look forward 50 years as well. But when we look at the threats to the lake today and by extension to the river as well, uh, plastic pollution, invasive species, phosphorus, and the role of global warming. It seems pretty big to tackle. And, and for someone who thinks about this a lot, how do we, how do we start? Well, the first uh, solution to a problem is admitting that there's a problem. So there's still uh, climate change deniers. Um, and it's not a matter of when climate change will happen. Climate change is already happening. We have 2018, the 
wettest year on record for many Midwest cities. We have, uh, we're, we're dealing with flooding right now. Um, and then those, those impacts, of course, affect our water supplies. Uh, water utilities have to work harder to eliminate uh, excess sediment, excess uh, pollutants, like you're mentioning. And um, needless to say, that increases the cost of delivering uh, drinking water to our communities. So uh, it's a matter of realizing that it's happening and realizing that we have a voice, we have a say, that we have to participate in town hall meetings, in uh, discussion forums. We have to question, question what uh, measures are being taken to address uh, transparency in our, in our system. Uh, I work throughout the Great Lakes and uh, for an area as rich in fresh water, we're, we're blessed, but yet uh, people in Flint, Michigan, they, they don't trust their authorities of saying it, whether their water is clean or not. And that's a, a, a different issue on lead, but it, it's still a matter of accountability from, from our utilities or from our government. So that would be the citizen's role of sort of watching the making sure things are transparent, as you said, attending town hall forums, sessions like this. There also comes to be the investment of money from the government and the commitment to policy from the government. There was a quote that was in the paper this weekend from Radhika Fox, who is an environmental uh, water conservation activist. And she said, essentially, we are undoing the whole canon and environmental re of environmental regulations that have protected our water and all of us for 50 years. Uh, Crystal, when you when you consider that, the degradation of power of the EPA or the attempt to do that, the elimination of money for Great Lakes restoration or the attempt to do that, what kind of a call to action does that make for you? Sure, I think that that warrants um, action on everybody's part. It's time for accountability and I think that's kind of the word of the day when you talk about water at all levels of government. Um, the issue is, even with the proposals that are being uh, discussed at the state level with investment for Lake Erie and uh, cleaning up our waters, we need to make sure that there are accountability metrics in place so there, are there is a return on our investment. We're talking about taxpayer dollars. And I'm not a gambler, but I want to make sure that if my money is going to clean up efforts, then I can be pointed to what clean water outcomes I should expect. At the federal government, we see attacks on our water and EPA and rolling back provisions that have been put in, put in place years and years ago. Um, and I think that that warrants uh, our action, our collective action, uh, folks holding their legislators accountable as well. They were uh, elected by you to represent your interests and protect your natural resources. If that's not happening, they need to know that you're not okay with that. Um, and we need to let our voice be heard. Tom, you've dealt with this a lot in housing and, and some of your other areas of study, but when we see a, 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 a difference in opinion from government about how we ought to fund these communal issues like clean water and how we ought to commit to policy in regards to them, uh, do you see that as cyclical? Do you see uh, water issues as something that eventually everybody has to get on board on? Where, well, where does I it go? It is cyclical, I think. Well, and conditions have to emerge, and they think they will, that sort of force attention, you know. And it was interesting, a study done recently uh, looking at all the cities in the country and trying to assess what, what are the safest places to live now that we have enormous forest fires and, and flooding and hurricanes and so forth. Well, Cleveland was ranked second, the second safest location in the country. Syracuse, New York was first. 
Uh, but also Akron was fourth and Dayton was sixth. So in a sense, Ohio was right there. And uh, as the threats emerge, and I think the first one that's probably going to be the most pressing is the rising oceans. I mean, it's already the, wa the water's already coming. It's up six inches roughly already. And there, uh, uh, Miami uh, Beach, is, in Miami Beach, streets are being elevated two feet because it's that serious already. And the possibility of a six-foot rise of the oceans by the end of the century is pretty real. There's bound to be a reaction to that as people look for safer places. And that will then push people to, where are they? And Ohio is one of them, as it is right now. And that will then even force more, because businesses will be interested in coming to safety, particularly along the Ohio River. A $6 billion petrochemical plant is being constructed not far from Youngstown. Now, 20 or 30 years ago, that plant would have been on the lower Mississippi. But with the discovery of oil and gas uh, in the southeastern portion of the country and over in the Pennsylvania and so forth, the conditions for industrial expansion of that kind are very, very ripe. And as that happens, the issues of water quality and, and dangers produced by petrochemical plants will be enormous, I think. And that will precipitate, I think, citizen reaction to it, which is beginning to happen. We're seeing at the state level, Paco, the, the governor of the state of Ohio proposing a $900 million fund, H2 Ohio it's called, to address a lot of these environmental issues. He proposes that the state legislature knocks that down to less than $200 million and says you'll come back for refunding, which a lot of people aren't for, or that there should be a bond issue rather than using excess uh, money, essentially, uh, you know, more than was budgeted is coming in, and so we could use that money. What about that debate at the state level, and what about the commitment from the governor to say, even if $900 million is not enough, it's more than it was, that there's some commitment from that office to these problems? That's a good start. That's definitely, we, we can't let our, uh, our voice not be heard, and, and, and congratulate uh, Governor DeWine for trying to do that debate. Um, there's special interests always uh, at, at clashing, um, we have to look after ourselves, uh, after our communities, participating with uh, neighborhood associations, with, uh, like Crystal said, uh, talking to your representatives. And those people are the ones that are able to, to influence uh, the governor. But I, I think that that is a, a good start, uh, yet it's not a, a done deal. The governor was at a conference in Milwaukee, I think you were talking about this earlier, Crystal, um, where there are governors uh, from, from across the Great Lakes region talking about what needs to be done. And Governor DeWine committed to a 40% reduction of phosphorus based on 2008 levels by 2025 in Lake Erie. That's something that might encourage folks, yet there was also a goal of reducing by 20% by 2020, and it's not going to happen. So what does that tell us about promises and what needs to happen to make promises actually deliverable? Yeah, I, I echo Paco's comments about Governor DeWine, I applaud him. He's prioritized Lake Erie from day zero. Even during the campaign, he, it was uh, an issue that he cared deeply about. And one of the first things he did when uh, going you know, into the governor's mansion is making sure that he introduced the H2 Ohio proposal. Um, the recommitment to the 40% phosphorus reduction goal by 2025 is encouraging, and, and we appreciate that. 
um, we can't ignore the fact that we, we missed the 20% by uh, 2020 goal. And so we know that we can't keep doing what we've been doing and expecting different results. And so at this juncture, what's most important is that we have those accountability metrics in place. We sit down and talk about the best management practices that we want to support and then put some analytics in place that really detail how those best management investment in those best management practices will create clean water outcomes. We need to get deep with this. I think also on a, um, from an advocacy standpoint, it's important to, for it to not just be us. I tell people all the time, when I go to the state house and I see legislators, they know who I am and they know what I'm coming to talk about. It's time for us to start bringing people from various sectors into this conversation. The business community depends on abundant, clean water. And they should be a part of this conversation. Community is investing um, their taxpayer dollars into the funds that will be um, put forth for phosphorus mitigation. There should be people of color and community at the table. And we need to make sure that um, we're not just limiting this conversation. People from public health in all sectors. You and Paco had a listening tour in 2017, listening to people of color about how they felt about water issues. I wonder how that informed the advocacy that you do and how you're engaged to preserve the lake for, as a perpetual asset for everyone. Affordability issues, other attitudes that came from, from that listening tour. What, what, how did that shape you? Paco? Uh, well, it was very, very fruitful. We, we did um, a conversation in Lorraine, and we had a couple uh, over here on, on, on Cleveland. And, um, People were asking for the same thing. Uh, what are the types of uh, uh, affordability which is different than assistance programs? How are rates uh, determined uh, for our water utilities? Um, what can we do if our water bill is, uh, 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 we can't pay for it? Um, and so in my previous job, River Network, we created a, a drinking water guide, which is open, it's uh, free to the public. You just go rivernetwork.org it, there's cer certain chapters there of, of questions and of links of who can you talk to when you have questions as, as these. You, you want to add something? Crystal? Yeah, I think one of the things that I learned uh, during that tour, and just a little bit of background about what the tour was, in 2017, uh, the Alliance for the Great Lakes and River Network partnered with a number of other organizations and hosted a series of community conversations, two with communities, communities that were largely African-American, one with a Hispanic population in Lorraine, and one with all youth. Um, what I learned is that people have different uh, relationships with the lake. And so there are some folks who are, you know, love paddle boarding and boating, um, but then there are also folks who don't go to Edgewater and they don't go to the beach and their only interaction with the lake is the fact that it's their source of tap water. And so we had to really revise our, our, our um, strategy, engagement strategy, so that we were representing the breadth and depth of people who are impacted by that resource. So that's everybody from the yacht owners to the people who just wanna make sure they have clean water so they can bathe their babies at the end of the night. And so that has really broadened our scope of issues and our engagement on, a, on various issues. Tom Beyer, the, the question is raised uh, about what we should do with all this abundant well, clean water. If we're able to keep it clean, uh, in fact, we have tons of it now because the lake is, the lake is at record high levels, so plenty to go around, but, but there's 
been a lot of discussion about whether those thirsty parts of our country are going to be fed water by us, and the Great Lakes Compact talks about that and about preserving the water here. What about that as an issue going forward, about not just preserving the asset and its, and its environmental cleanliness, but also preserving it so that it's not sold or, or transferred in some way? Well, it could be uh, the political fight of the middle of this, cent this century because, you know, the other prob water problem is that the Great Plains, the Upper Great Plains, much of that water is coming from underground aquifers, and the underground water supplies in this country are shrinking. In another, they figure another 40, 50 years, they're going to be well down there. So what are the farmers of the Middle West going to do? And the political pressures to come up with water somewhere else that's not the Colorado River. And you've got, and we've got the Great Lakes. And, the, you know, I've heard it said, look at all that water that's going over uh, Niagara Falls. You know, it's wasted in a way, they say, as far as our interest is concerned. Why not tap that, which is going to go over the falls anyway, and ship it out to the Dakotas and Iowa? I, I think it's going to be an enormous political battle. And I have no idea how, what course it might take. But it, it could be... Uh, the basis of a sort of sort of a civil war really of we've got to have water for the farmers of the midwest and where's it going to come from and if i may Marco? mike um just uh, the compact you're referring to the eight uh, u.s states it's also the two canadian provinces the great lakes basin right. is binational and so uh, it impacts 40 million people i i, I believe uh 20 percent of the world's surface water so um there's definitely a big demand for that water but Michigan, which is surrounded by water in three, three sides, has water shutoffs. People can't pay for their water bill. And there's plenty of water in Lake Huron also, or Lake Michigan. So um, it's a matter of practices. It's a matter of water conservation practices uh, that the water utilities appreciate. It's a matter of policies. So it's a two-pronged approach. And, and us citizens have to be involved in both. Uh, the policies that are implemented, but also our own behaviors. When you mentioned policy, uh, you talked about conservation, but also land use policy makes a, a, comes in here very big in terms of the quality of the water, impervious surfaces, those types of things. Uh, it's Green something we're talking. What's that? Green infrastructure. Infrastructure. Um, and in fact, we were talking earlier about how the water in Phoenix, when Tom visited there, people there were saying was cheaper than the water in Cleveland, although our lake is right here because mainly infrastructure issues and aging infrastructure. So all of that has to be put into your, into your discussion about policy? Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, um, we are going to have our little mid-discussion break. This is the point where all of you come in, um, and I see there's a couple of council members in front, so I'll call on everyone else first. <laughs> um, but uh, we, do, we will take your questions now for our panelists. Today we are enjoying the first forum in this year's For the Love of Cleveland series. And joining me on stage are Dr. Thomas Beyer, Senior Fellow at Cleveland State University's Maxine Goodman Levin College of Urban Affairs. Crystal M.C. Davis is Policy Director of the Alliance of the Great Lakes. And Francisco Paco Olivedes is the Interim Director at the Green Leadership Trust. We're about to begin, as I mentioned, the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone. Even if you're not present here in the square, if you're watching us via Facebook Live, 
pose a question in the comments and we'll be able to get it that way. Similarly, if you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet at the City Club using the hashtag LoveCLE, L-O-V-E-C-L-E. In both instances, City Club staff will try to work it into the program. We want to remind you that your questions should be brief and to the point and should be a question. Holding the microphone today is City Club intern Sophia Brewer-Thompson, and she is out in the audience, I believe. Yes? Okay, so raise your hand and Sophia will come over to you for your first question. Don't leave me hanging. <laughs> Please. Yes, there we go. All right, and I know you're all lining up after this for the next questions. Let's make it interactive. We're here. Let's have fun. Yes, ma'am. So, so two-part question. In the same way that if you would have said the word computer to somebody in the 1900s, nobody would have had any context, um, I'm curious as to when climate change or um, water issues started to become talked about, not popular, but when did people start researching them and talk about, talking about them? And also, um, in terms of how we're telling our story in Cleveland around water, uh, so how do we get the general population to buy into that storytelling and that reframing? Okay, so first question being, when did we start talking about water and climate change? When did, it, when did that kind of rear its head? Thoughts, Tom? I think the big hurricanes that hit Houston, that, that, that was a sobering moment uh, because that, that was a shocker. And then we, we have this, the salvation of, uh, of uh, New Orleans, uh, as a issue now, you know, New Orleans may not survive. And then we already, we have flooding in Charleston, South Carolina. That's almost daily. So it's, it's in the last five, 10 years, I think the reality, and you add that to those incredible forest fires, the complete destruction of a city, the town, small paradise, California, those are very sobering moments. And so now I think the shock is beginning to open up the discussion. Paco, you said earlier it's not a debate anymore, right? It's climate change is climate change. Uh, and I've, it's interesting because I've heard the conversation change maybe just in the last decade where there was still these debates about climate change either isn't real or it isn't, there's no man-made part of it. And now it seems as though that conversation has turned and then it becomes... Uh, well, uh, China isn't doing enough about it, so we don't have to do anything about it. There are different ways to make the argument. But have you seen a change in the, the thinking on climate change? Not There are still some specific, as you mentioned, deniers, but in general, our conversation of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, certain catastrophic events, definitely, and the use of social media, which is more prevalent in the last 15 years, has allowed the information to be out there much more readily. But the, the knowledge of climate change is from the 80s. Uh, there's already there's research back then that was pointing to that the trends of uh, the global uh, warming the greenhouse uh, gases we know it from text literature uh, it, it's over over two decades uh, but now now more people are are being impacted their homes are unlivable or, or they're being displaced and and, and that's what is uh, reaching crescendo so to speak crystal I think also um, to your second question about how we get um, the general public engaged in these conversations, we have to be mindful that we can't have a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, for so long, environmentalists have gone into communities using big, big words, fancy language, and wondering why people aren't getting on board. And then we tend to go to the same people who are mostly our donors. 
um, and then go to those folks and not really branch out into reaching non-traditional communities. And I think that is a misstep. And so we're trying to think differently about it. One thing I learned during the community conversations, again, is about the various relationships that people have with water and really respecting that and honoring that. And then second, the, the issue is that we need to not be tone deaf. When you listen to community, it's not okay to just go in and listen to the community and then say, okay, thank you for saying all that you've said and now here's what we need you to do. Um, that's not the way to get people engaged in this movement. It's more so finding synergies between community priorities and the priorities of our organization. And a lot of times that, that synergy may be a value. We both value that people have a right to clean water. Um, but when you listen to people, and that's why the title of our report is Step One, Shut Up and Listen. Um, it's on greatlakes.org. Um, but one of the reasons that we titled it that way is because step one is listening. But then the steps after that is really finding the synergies with folks so that we can work together and not dictate to community what they need to do. Shut up and listen is really a great philosophy for anybody in life, except for right now, as you're sitting in this audience, because what we need you to do is not shut up and ask your questions. These fine folks are here to answer them for you. Let's engage in some conversation. We have the next right at the front table here. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, I'm just wondering, obviously, it's important to have the support um, at a state level in terms of uh, policies in regards to climate change. But how important do you think it is to have the support of our government and um, the president and federal government? Good question. So, Paco, what about uh, needing the support of the federal government and the representatives that we elect there? Yeah, we need it, of course. Uh, it, you need. Are we going to get it? Uh, no, not with this government. <laughs> not currently, but uh, we definitely need need uh, to to keep going to those Congress hearings. Uh, there's one on environmental justice on the impacts of climate change just next week, for example, uh, on Wednesday, where some representatives, some senators, are are, are spearheading those initiatives at, at that level. But um, un unfortunately, at the very highest levels, I don't think we, we got it. What do you think is behind denial or inaction at this point? Is it simply the price tag and people don't want to address the idea that this is a very hard to solve problem and it's going to cost a ton of money and so it continues to go to that? What, what is the motivation for, for, not, for everyone not being on board to say we need to do something to make sure that our waterways are clean and our planet is saved? Well, the impacts of climate change disproportionately affect minorities. So when it's not affecting you directly, that's when you're not going to get on board. <laughs> so it is, it is uh, low-income uh, folks that always brunt uh, uh, the major spots for pollution, the major uh, areas where there's infrastructure failures. It doesn't happen in rich neighborhoods. <laughs> so it, 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 has, it has to, uh, the communication has to be open where those people have a voice, they they participate in task forces, they they are invited to 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 those hearings, and they are paid attention. Any other thoughts on this from either of you, Crystal? Yeah. I think we have to be honest about the power of the lobby as well. Um, there are folks whose pockets are way deeper than ours, who have much better access to legislators at all levels of government and um, can get their point across a, a lot easier than we can. 
And so we need to be honest about that um, because there are some, sometimes we lobby till we're blue in the face. And, there, and you know, if, if there is another sector that has already come in and, and helped to get a legislator in that place by helping to fund the campaign, then they're not going to vote with me sometimes. And so um, I think we have to be honest about that. I think I would add, Mike, you know, uh, as you put it, we're talking about some enormous amounts of money. And, and in, this, in this process, there's going to be winners and losers. You know, we, we've gone through intensely for 50 years just blithely polluting the air, blithely polluting it year after year, and thinking that we could go on and do it forever with no serious consequences. Well, it's very, very difficult for the polluters <laughs> Uh, to change course, and, and how, do the, how do they deal with the cost of doing that? I mean, just cleaning the air. Is, and we're at this point not willing as a society even to say that some power company should be compensated somewhat for having to cut back on its pollution. It, thus far, we said, it's all yours. It's your problem to solve, and just shove the cost onto your customers. So we don't have a very inventive way of dealing with the fact that some big, powerful interests are, are going to have to pay some serious costs in changing the way this has been going. We'll take our next question. I think that is Council President Kevin Kelly, who's sitting in the front. Hello uh, thank there. You, thank you, Mike. You encouraged me to talk, so you're going to regret that. Um, but uh, I just wanted to, this is a very interesting discussion, but as we, as we go through, when we talk about climate and, and water quality, for the most part, the science is pretty much done, and now it's a question of what are policymakers going to do in, in response to it. Um, and if we look at what the history of the river, basically what we had was the we, we had industry polluting, and then people turning to government for a solution. And much of our conversation today has been holding government accountable government spending money to clean this up, but it's like government spending money to clean up a problem they didn't create. I would think that if we want to really look at a solution, um, like you, we mentioned in the last discussion, Crystal, we need to look at, at, at the lobby. So we, we can fawn praise on Governor DeWine for the $900 million, but the question is who's going to stand up to the farm lobby um, when it comes time to talk about phosphorus loads in Lake Erie? Who's going to stand up to the farm lobby when it comes time to uh, regulate farming practices because Lake Erie, you know, the, the harmful algae blooms are creating dead zones that, that we're going to pay for. If we look at the river from 1969 forward, this community has paid over $5 billion correcting the problems of industry. So it's not so much government just needs to spend money. Government needs to regulate responsibly. They need to stand up to powerful interests and not be afraid to, to take a position that's adverse to them because every we are sitting here right now while the issue of the day in the state is whether we're going to roll back environmental protections for energy so that we can fund nuclear for, for more years. So we can talk about this stuff and have nice conversations, but if we want to talk about holding legislators responsible, we need to okay, uh, we need to ask the questions, who's going to stand up to the lobby and who, who are the lobbyists that are creating the pollution? It's not government that's creating pollution. It's government, it's elected officials that need to stand up to those powerful interests. So there's the call to action for elected officials. And to that point, the Republican governor of Ohio, John Kasich, 
was pushing for these regulations on farms and was met with resistance from his legislature. It never happened. So there was an example of people in the same party coming to different conclusions there. But the question is, who will stand up, that the councilman asked, who will stand up to these, these lobbyists and to the power and, and to essentially do what's right? So thoughts on that, Crystal? Well, I mean, we first have to get over the fear of, being, of even saying the word regulation at the state. When I just heard that come out of your mouth, I, I realized to me that was a cuss word when I go to the state house. You don't say regulation. Um, and so th that's where the problem exists. I think environmental groups have been fighting and not scared to call whoever out, whether that's the farmers or the polluters or whoever it is. The issue is, uh, which bring up another great point, is that we need to provide cover and support for the legislators that are fighting for the things that we care about. There are some great local, state, and federal voices that have stood up to farm lobby, that have stood up to fights um, in the legislature where you know we got close to getting regulation and then it was shut down. And we need to make sure as a general public and as environmental groups that we support those legislators and lift them up when they are doing the right thing. We're easy and quick to criticize when folks aren't doing the right thing, but we also need to support legislators that, that are amplifying their voice and their power in support of cleaning up the lake. It goes both ways. It would seem to me that citizens are a bigger lobby than any lobby. So the question is, how do you get them on the same page as, as those lobbies are? Well, I mean, one thing, I, you guys, please take over too. But one, another thing is that um, we're fighting for a seat at the table a lot of times. I mean, I go to meetings all of the time, and I am the only person of color at the table or in the room. And it happens so often. And the only other person I run to as a person of the only other couple of people of color in the room are, you know, my husband when I run into Jay Davis or Chanel Smith or Destiny Hinton in the room. But we have to bear the brunt of being the voice for all of community. And that's a heavy burden to care, carry. At some point, what we need is when I can't have a seat at the table, you make sure that you invite others and you carry that community voice with you and use your power to amplify what you know is an issue, whether it's your issue or not. Um, and so that's not happening often enough either. Even in the environmental world, it's not happening. Um, my job right now is to place minorities in the boards of environmental groups nationally. So we are uh, definitely not representative of the demographics of our, of our country in terms of seats at the table. So we need, we need to, to make that, that balance. And Tom, what about, to the councilman's point about who will stand up to the lobbies? I mean, I think that's an age old political question, but, but who will? I think it comes down to those, who's, who's getting, whose ox is being gored? Who's, who's really feeling some pain? And I think unfortunately, most of the public, outside of places like Miami Beach and, and uh, you know, New Orleans, and so, most of the public is not really being affected yet, seriously. Although farmers are in the, in, in, in the flooding situations along the Mississippi, a different kind of problem though. And here, North of say Ohio, yet who's really being hurt? It, not many. You know, the folks in Toledo know, I mean, they couldn't drink their water, uh, but that was just a small portion of the state. And by and large, the rest of us said, it's their problem, you know, it's not having to do with me. 
So, uh, you know, just the way democracy seems to work, things need to get pretty bad, so it's affecting a lot of people. Then they scream. We're not there yet. Can I tell you you are very depressing, sir? <laughs> it's reality. <laughs> reality is depressing, then, I suppose. Yes, uh, next question. Yes, sir. Hi, thank you. As the city and the county are on the cusp of completing Cleveland's section of the Towpath Trail, how important is changing land use along our river and lake important to raising awareness around water quality, climate change, and just uh, some of those other, raising that awareness around these issues and how important these assets are to the city and its residents? It's an interesting point about the land use. Talked about the Towpath Trail. I was out uh, also yesterday along the river with Jim Ridge, who runs the Share the River um, Twitter handle, and he was saying that he thought the way to sort of get more attention and to let people know, people in power know that we think this is important is to use the asset, whether it's the land use along it or getting out in a, in a kayak and using the river or using the lake, and it not just being the yachting set, but the idea that you know it's important to us because we are using the asset. But that thrown into that question, but what about the land use along the river and the lake and its importance in this discussion? Uh, Tom? Well, I, you know, it ought to, it ought, land use ought to be handled regionally. You know, there'd be a regional perspective on the use of land, and we don't do that. You know, it's our whole system of government is based upon local government. And local government, the state says to local government, you manage your own land use, and they do what they want to do. You can't cope with it on a large scale. All you can do is encourage or suggest that a local government do something to preserve a particular section of land, for example. And I think we're stuck with that. That, again, is this is the American way of doing things. We do not deal with matters regionally. It's just it's local control, and I don't think that's going to change. And unfortunately, it does an enormous amount of violation to the use of land. Paco? Yeah, I just heard that uh, New Zealand approved the uh, local government based on watersheds by, by the ge geography of the watershed. That's how they're going to be running New Zealand. So there's lessons learned. And what about the specific land uses our questioner mentioned? Basically development along, along the waterway that is accessible to the public, that is, when we talk about land use in that regard, right along the asset itself, and that goes, I think, to equity and affordability as well, Crystal. Yeah, for sure. I think access is vitally important. Being able to access the areas and the land near the water um, gets you comfortable with it, but um, in all honesty, there there is also an issue with the fact that there are people who have preconceived notions um, about what the lake is, and they haven't been there since ODNR took, you know, was in charge of Edgewater uh, back in the day. And that's something we learned during the community conversation process. So we also need to go in to our local neighborhoods and make the green spaces in their own neighborhood better, whether that's the parks or the, the waters in their neighborhoods, green infrastructure. That's important because that gets them exposed to the outdoors and then um, grows their appreciation of the lake. For some folks, talking about going to Lake Erie, even though they're eight miles away, is far-fetched. Um, when you're taking public transportation, that could take you a long time to get to the lake. And then you're supposed to uh, 
swim in the lake, change clothes, get back on the bus and go back to Buckeye Road. Like, that is a lot. And so what we need to do is make sure that the green spaces in our neighborhood are accessible. And, and also at the same time, simultaneously making sure the areas around the lake are great as well. Do we have a question out there? Yep, in the back, yes sir. I'm concerned about a more immediate problem and that is plastics, plastics in the waterways. I've been reading about it and it's frightening to think about it. Is that a problem in Lake Erie and the Great Lakes? And if so, is anything being done about it? Yes, it's a problem, that's for sure, right? So what about that issue? And we talked about all the things that are affecting our lake, algal blooms being one of them and, and other issues, but one of them is pollution and plastic is a big part of that. Paco, how much do you think about plastic? And, and uh, to, the, to our guest question, what, what's being done about it? I, I, I hate plastic. Um, and um, microplastics is, is the particular issue. But it breaks down so easily. And then it, it is ingested by uh, lower organisms in the food chain that then go up to, to us. So we are ingesting plastic as we speak in, in a lot of uh, seafood. Uh, the problem is uh, another huge industry, the reliance on plastic. So uh, we go to these uh, events and we promote uh, the elimination of single-use straws or the canvas bag. There's legislation passed in New York to avoid plastic bags. So there's some uh, in Buffalo that you have. Cuyahoga County. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Cuyahoga, yeah, Cuyahoga County passed a, a bag ban that would go into effect at the beginning of the year. But Although it's, the, it's, state, the state is looking to... Uh, the resistance is underway to, 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 to defeat that. The state is looking to pass a plastic bag ban ban. <laughs> yeah. We, we can call it the that. ban on bans. The ban on bans, exactly. It's so, kind of like the damn dams. <laughs> right. So, so no, to your... Yeah, finishing your point. So yeah, definitely plastic is a problem in, in Lake Erie, but it's also a problem throughout the oceans. It, it is a, a worldwide problem, plastic. It, it's a... Very, very hard to get rid of it once it's in, in our waterways. Styrofoam, particularly, it lasts forever. Tom? You know, with, with all the sirens, I, I'm wondering if the river's burning. <laughs> Good one. Was that? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you had something else to say, too. No. Good one. Uh, the plastic situation, though, the question is, what are we doing about it? I know there's the skip the straw movement in Cleveland as a start. Uh, I see some plastic bottles on the stage. I see a glass bottle that you have. It's another point is to use reusable containers. How much, Crystal, do you think that message is getting through to people and changing, because this really becomes an issue of, one is changing store behaviors when it talks about the plastic bags, but it also is changing our behaviors in our everyday life, and maybe that drives the change in terms of packaging, et cetera. Absolutely. Uh, the Alliance for the Great Lake runs uh, our adopt a beach program where we have teams of volunteers that go up go out and clean up the beaches um, 93 percent of what we found on ohio beaches has some plastic in it it is plastic related and so you know a lot of this is going to be behavior change which is tough um, it's you know waking up in the morning and making conscious decisions to get your your glass bottle out or your reusable bottle 
out and take it with you everywhere you go. It's not putting that reu um, reusable bag in your trunk where you'll forget it and then you carry all your plastic bags in the house like I did for a long time. It's you know taking the reusable bag actually into the store. But then there's also a role um, that government plays in that too. Um, you know, there's been movements at the local level where there are plastic bag bans, there are plastic bag fees, um, and then they're, you know, fighting um, the state legislation that is creating bans on bans that really want to tie the hands of local municipalities from being able to push this kind of legislation. So that's important as well. Okay, do we have another question? Yes, sir. So I'm curious who these lobbying organizations are that are spending money to adversely impact our health. Where do we get a list of those? And how do we get that list in front of the media around the country? Who are the lobbyists? Uh, well, you know them all, don't you, Crystal? Yeah, I know who they are. Well, let's hear no. it. Who <laughs> no, are they? I, you know what? Um, I do not have a list. Um, you, but you can pretty much guess who it is. It's, it's the folks who who's, um, would be hurt by having to change up their, or think that they would be hurt by having to change up their operations. And so a lot of their, you know, the agriculture community, um, which it's not all farmers. I want to be clear about that. And it's not, and then a lot of times when we talk about farmers, we, we have this notion in our head that we're talking about old McDonald who, you know, has his little garden and farm, and that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about large agricultural uh, corporations that um, it is against their interests to, to change their operations to, to fit the needs of the lake. And so that is a huge lobby. Um, and they have lots of money, and it's also the plastics industry, quite honestly. Um, the plastics industry is fighting the legislation that would um, help us to put plastic bag bans and fees in place because, you know, it, it will affect their bottom line. You guys have done a great job. We've got time for one more question, and we are going to have it here on the left. Yes, ma'am. Yes, what are the legal rights of the lake in protecting its water? The legal rights of the lake. Didn't Toledo pass a, a declaration of the lake having rights? There's yeah, the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, absolutely. And um, so I'm not a lawyer, and I can't speak to the legal rights of the lake. I know that there's a lot of contention and fight about what will happen with that uh, measure legally. However, I think what, what I've been focusing on is the message that that's sent. I think it's powerful, and a lot of times it's lost when we talk about the legality of the Le Lake Erie Bill of Rights. We lose the message that people in Toledo spoke up, and this is something that they care about. It's a priority issue. It's not a luxury issue, and that they are demanding immediate attention, um, and they want to treat the lake with respect. Um, and I think that we need to make sure we focus on that. I think the legal stuff will handle itself out as a lowly political science major. I can't speak to all that, but I can say that um, the, the people of Toledo have spoken. But yet that measure was defeated twice before. It passed until their third attempt. Uh, but even not just the lake, but of course every human has a right to clean water. And other uh, organisms depend on clean water. So it's not just our our safe being is also the habitats, the fish, and, and, and the, the trees, right? So everybody needs the clean water. Everybody, everybody has a right to it. 
I wonder if I can get um, maybe the 20-second takeaway from each of you. Uh, Tom Beyer, from our conversation today and what you've been thinking about prior to it. Well, the most recent thought is, you know, what really uh, puts us in a handicap is that we are such a fractured society, and it goes back again to how we govern ourselves in all these little, small, independent communities. Dealing with this problem requires I have to feel some responsibility for some place where I don't live. You know, it struck me, you know, when Toledo had its problem, how many people in Northeast Ohio over here thought that's something that really matters? You know, I think by and large, our conditioning is we only concern ourselves with when our, where we live is being affected. And if it's not in my jurisdiction, it's somebody else's problem. We got to get above that. Paco? Yeah, and, and being involved is, is your prerogative. You have to uh, believe in, in the system. You have to challenge the system. I think when, when there's apathy, you think, I don't have enough power. I can't reach those people because they, they are working for us, right? Government is supposed to work for us. So we have to step up and, 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 and demand their accountability. And Crystal, your takeaway? Uh, my key takeaway is accountability is key in all of the funding proposals that we're seeing at the state level, accountability, uh, holding our, our legislators accountable, um, and us holding ourselves accountable to the, the footprint that we create in this space. And then the last thing I'll mention is that um, I implore you to use your power um, to really amplify voices that aren't, aren't at the table, whether they represent, whether you represent them or not, making sure that we are uh, representing the, the breadth and depth of people impacted by this resource at all times. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying the first forum in our For the Love of Cleveland, The Power of Place series, a conversation on how climate change is affecting Lake Erie. The presenting sponsor of today's forum is the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. Our supporting sponsor is PNC Bank. Additional support for the series is provided by the Good Community Foundation and RPM Incorporated. We appreciate your generous support for the Love of Cleveland series. Join us next Tuesday, June 25th, for the second forum in the For the Love of Cleveland series. We'll be discussing ways to increase Cleveland's tree canopy. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Dr. Beyer, Ms. Davis, and Mr. Olivides. And thank you, members and friends of the City Club. This forum is now adjourned.